So I'm reading from Psalm 2 <coughs> on page 841 of the Pew Bibles. <coughs> Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Good morning. Hope you're well. My name is Mike. If I haven't met you, um, it's great to say hello afterwards. I normally look after the kids program here, and now and then I get to preach, so I'm really privileged to be uh, bringing Psalm 2 to us today and looking at it. Psalm 2 is a fairly chunky kind of psalm, I think, and there's lots to get through here. So, yeah, it's almost the start of a new year. We're still digesting Christmas meals. There's probably still Christmas wrapping paper all through the house, and now we're going to go thinking caps on a little bit, bringing it together. So thank you for being here. I hope you have had a fantastic Christmas. Uh, we have. Uh, before I get into Psalm 2, I might let you know that over the next five Sundays, including this one, we are looking at five Psalms. Um, we're we're going to hear from different people preaching, some first-time preachers, some who've done it a few times before. And these five Psalms we're looking at are actually fit into the category of, of royal Psalms. They, they play a particular role in the book of Psalms. And they have a particular theme of kingship and sonship. I'm going to pray and then we'll have a look at Psalm 2 today. So let me pray for us now. Father God, we thank you that uh, you are supreme king, ruler, almighty. All the world is yours. Help us today as we hear from Psalm 2 to respond to you in the way that we ought to as our king and lord. Help us to think clearly now as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is independence a good thing? Is independence a good thing? Well, um, our culture is very individualistic. Our culture would value independence. Today, perhaps more than any other time in history, uh, we tend to think in terms of me or I rather than us, rather than the collective. It tends to be, at least in the West, how we do life. And we're encouraged generally, aren't we, to think about uh, what we can get out of life. Grab, grab life with both hands, you know, make a stand, take grasp of your future, stand up for your rights, stand up for your rights, your personal freedoms. Our contemporary concern is very much about equality. These are good things. Uh, we have a concern for self-determination. Words like submission and servitude have become dirty words. And sometimes there's good reason for that. Is independence a good thing? Jenny and I get to be the parent of um, 
parents of three children whom we love. Uh, we're very thankful to God for them. And one of our goals as parents is actually that they would become independent. We want them to be able to get to a point where they can feed themselves, where they can catch a bus on their own. Eventually, we want them to leave home. Um, sometimes sooner than later. Eventually, we want them to be independent. I think that that's a good thing. It's a good thing to want for your children. One of our children, of course, thinks they've already reached full independence. In fact, at the age of three, their catch cry was, I can do it! You know, I'll do it my way! Uh, no guesses for which child this is. If you know my family, the third, yes, Evie, um, the third child often is like this, aren't they? They want to be just like their older siblings. In fact, they think they know better than their parents sometimes too. Um, at Christmas time, uh, we gave each of our children a gift, which was uh, like a craft. The idea being that in the school holidays, we can open up this craft and they'll have something to keep them occupied, at least for a few hours. Uh, and our youngest gets this craft and opens it up and it's, you know, it's a, a plaster making and painting kit. Um, you know, it's a good activity. She gets stuck in. She opens it up, the bags open, and then parent mode kicks in. You know, Let's just read the instructions first. Let's just have a look. No, I can do it. I can do it. You can barely read, but okay. And then it's like, all right, no, not on the carpet. Let's put out some paper. I want to do it here. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. Not all the plaster powder at once. You know, you just, at times like this, you just want to call out, stop, just listen to me. Just listen to me. It's the kind of the, the ultimate cry of frustration that I tend to perhaps use too often sometimes. Psalm 2 transports us back to a time when kings ruled absolutely. Independence from a king was rebellion. It was treason. It was dangerous. Independence from a ruling monarch was rebellion. Imagine you're back in the ancient Near East with me. You're going to have to work hard at this because we are very removed from the context in which Psalm 2 was originally written. Uh, kingship back in the ancient Near East probably looked closer to what you might expect to find in like Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings than in current day British monarchy, where the monarchy is more you know, symbolic. Kingship back then was where the king ruled absolutely. Their justice was swift and often untested. Place yourself now, if you can, in a grand throne room, and let's put King David on the throne. This is the height of Israel's monarchy, the height of Israel's power. King David is on the throne, the glory days. And then gathered in the throne room are these lesser kings, lesser rulers, rulers and kings from lands that have been conquered by Israel. Kings that have come into the throne room to maybe re-pledge their allegiance to King David, to pay homage. And in the corner of this throne room, some of these kings are getting their heads together and they're restless and they're plotting. How can we gain dependence? How can we gain independence from this king? How can we regain some of our, our power? They're plotting. And into that space, we hear Psalm 1 read. Let's have a look at it. Psalm 1, just the first three verses, the first stanza. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, his king, saying, let us break their chains, let us throw off their shackles. The psalm starts with a question. Why? 
Why do the kings bother to seek independence from the Lord and his king? It's pointless struggle. Why do they seek to throw off their chains and their shackles and come out from under this rule? I wonder how you feel about the plight of these kings. Perhaps you sympathize with them. Fair enough. Today, we find the idea of one nation having power over other nations abhorrent. We hate that idea. We, we want nations to be independent. But who are they actually rebelling against, according to Psalm 2? The rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. However we, however we feel about this psalm, it does reveal to us something about the the ideology, the ideal of kingship in ancient Israel. For them, the rule of the king was tied up with the rule of the Lord, with Yahweh, the God of all things, the divine creator and ruler of the world. God rules everything. It's a big picture rule. How does the Lord in Psalm 2 respond to this mutiny, this grumbling of the nation. Have a look at the second stanza, verses 4 to 6, the Lord's response, starting in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Did you notice the power difference? There's the Lord enthroned in heaven versus the vain, the vain plotting of the kings. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, he scoffs. This is no threat at all. This plotting is not a real challenge to, to the Lord. You might not like the chosen imagery of the psalmist. It grates a bit for me. I, I, the idea of a scoffing God is one we go, hang on, that's not how I view God. But we've got to get the intention of the psalm clear. We're not meant to see God as far removed or spiteful. Rather, we're to see him as far superior to the earthly rulers who are opposing him. God's position is so secure, so safe, that he has no need to fear the threat. Yet he knows of their rebellious scheme. The Lord's scoffing then turns to rebuke and anger in verse 5. And you might expect this is the point where he proclaims some judgment, some punishment. So it's a bit of a surprise, I think, when his anger is not a pronouncement of necessarily straight judgment, but a pronouncement of his king. He announces his establishment of his king on his throne, his place, Zion, his holy hill. The Lord, I think, is essentially saying... Um, you rebellious kings, you're going to have to deal with my king, my choice of a king who I have installed in Zion, my holy city. It's, an, it's a strong endorsement of that Jerusalem dynasty of Davidic kings, kings in the line of David, the high point of Israel. So, what have we seen so far in the, in the psalm? Let's work it out. The first three verses, the first stanza, we see the nations conspire against the Lord and his king. The second stanza, verses four to six, has, there's a divine response, the laughing. And now the third stanza, verse seven to nine, where we hear the voice of the king breaking into the narrative, 
receiving the covenant of kingship. So the, the narrator's voice fades and the voice of the king is heard. If you look at verse 7 to 9, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, this is the king, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The me in this passage is the Davidic king um, and the anointed king of Israel repeating and receiving the promises that God made to King David. Promises of a the covenant of kingship, promises of an enduring uh, everlasting kingdom and rest from enemies. These are the promises that God made first to King David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 416. These are big promises. The Lord said to me, you are my son. The nations are your inheritance. This is the eternal kingdom promises. You are my son. Big promises. Divine sonship was the right for the king to administer God's justice. The Israelite king had a big job and was given big power. Power to rule with a rod or a scepter of iron. Power that made the power of his opposing enemies seem like fragile pottery. And that brings us to the last stanza, the last three verses, verses 10 to 12. And here we get a warning to those rebellious kings, those kings that first stuck out their necks in verses 1 to 3. What's the warning? Have a look at it from verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. We sang these words in the Colin Buchanan song, the kids' song. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the king with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, for he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those that take refuge in him. You kings and rulers who would seek independence from the Lord, be warned, he has installed his king, his son, so listen up. There's only one way you're going to survive this. Kiss the son, take refuge in him. It's a funny image, isn't it? Kissing the son. I don't know how that makes, sits with you or what images it conjures up. For me, I get, uh, it conjures up images of um, maybe the king uh, you know, a supplicant comes before a powerful king and in an act of gracious acknowledgement, the king extends his hand. And the idea being that the humble recipient then um, kneels and kisses the hand as a sign of respect, a sign of humility or submission. I wonder how you feel about the idea of kissing the son, the idea of coming in allegiance to the king. The wise response to the Lord and his son is willing submission and service. The phrase was celebrate his rule with trembling. It's a funny combination of ideas, isn't it? Celebrate this idea of joy and holy fear being brought together. The wise response is to see the power of the Lord for what it is, an eternal kingly rule. In contrast to that, we are like fragile pottery. Blessed are those who take refuge in the king. Okay, so that's Psalm 2. Four stanzas. First one, 
the nations conspire and plot against the king, the Lord. Second stanza, there's a divine response, laugh and mock. Third stanza, the voice of the king receiving the covenant of kingship. And lastly, a warning to the nations. That's Psalm 2. But I think we have a problem with this. What are we to do? Where's this ruling Davidic king now? How, how are we meant to take refuge in a failed ancient Israelite monarchy? See, this psalm worked great for the time when there was a, a king on the throne of David. A time, ancient now, where the Israelites could point to the throne and say, there, there's the king on God's throne. That's the, that's the one who's received sonship from the Lord. That's where I'm to take refuge. Look at that. That's the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Great. But of course, the Israelite kings didn't last forever. The kings were all too human. They failed to deliver God's just rule on earth. In fact, it wasn't long before they all failed even to acknowledge God as their king. It wasn't long before the Israelites' kings were brought to a bitter end. And in fact, all Israel was carted off out of their land into exile as prisoners and slaves of, a, of Babylon, a foreign power. During that time, of course, Psalm 2 was still used by Israel. It was reinterpreted. When Israel as a nation, or what was left of them, were in exile, well, Psalm 2 became a great promise of hope. They couldn't point to a king on the throne but they could point to a time when God might establish one. So they would read the psalm in this way. They would read it as a promise of a future time when the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, would come and restore Israel once again. The word anointed one and Messiah mean the same thing, the same idea, same word. A king in the line of David would come. You see, this is a great hope for Israel as they're living in a slave to a foreign power. A king of David would come once again and rule from Zion. His rule would be secure. It would be worldwide. It would be eternal. When the king, when the human kings, what the human kings were unable to do, God would accomplish through his anointed one, his Messiah, who would, through the power of God, usher in the kingdom of God for all the earth, forever. This was the great hope of Israel. Or did they ever see it happen? Did they, was this hope, was this promise ever fulfilled? Well, it was. Maybe not in the way that some of them were thinking, but it was. The king did come. We've just spent this last week considerable time and effort celebrating the coming of the king. I wonder if we did it with joyous trembling. Uh, certainly there was joy and, and there was a sense of awe as well, in Christmas as well. The anointed one in the, line of, in the line of David did come. Can I read to you a classic Christmas passage up on a screen? Uh, I think this one, you see some of the connections between what we've been reading in Psalm 1 and the proclamation of the coming of the Son. This is uh, what the angel said, Luke 1, kicking off in verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, 
Uh, he will reign over Jacob's, Israel's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He's the one, come at last, the promised one in the line of David. Psalm 2 has been fulfilled in the person, in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the Most High, and he will reign eternally, king in the line of David. In Psalm 2, the voice of God breaks into the narrative, doesn't it? In that third stanza, you are my son, today I have become your father, sonship. But what happened at Jesus' baptism at the start of his earthly ministry? It's in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. I'll jump in halfway through verse 21. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. In verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the final fulfillment of the covenant of kingship. You are my son, that we saw in Psalm 2 in the third stanza. What's the, what's the wise response to this king? How, how are we to deal with this king? Well, rising up in rebellion against God's king, Jesus, is futile. He's all-powerful. Do you want independence from King Jesus? Do you see being a Christian as being shackled and you want to break away from that? Is it, is it worth secretly conspiring to break out and gain independence? Jesus' physical glory was revealed momentarily on earth uh, at his transfiguration. If you know the story, when Jesus and some of his close disciples went up to a mountain to pray and something quite surprising happened. He was, Jesus was transfigured. He shone like the sun. And once again, into the narrative, breaks a voice from the Father. It's in Luke 9, verse 34. Uh, this is what happens in that moment. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. The Lord's son has come and now rules, not an earthly dynasty, though all the earth is his, but an eternal spiritual kingdom, one more real and of far greater substance than even the reign of King David. Yet the nations, people, us, continue to stand in rebellion. We refuse to acknowledge him for who he is. Look at these first three verses of Psalm 2. This, I think, is a picture of human Sinfulness, the human condition. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Does this ring true for people today? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed king, Jesus. Saying, let's break our chains, throw off our shackles. Isn't this an accurate picture of, of human rebellion against God? Don't we all seek Sometimes to, to live self-governed lives, independent from God, our way, self-ruled, me. Independence from God is rebellion against God. 
independence from God is rebellion against God. God in his heavenly throne room must look down at humanity, you know, independently building our own kingdoms in opposition to his. He must look down at us and shake his head. You know, no wonder the voice of the Father breaks in. This is my son. Listen to him. Like a frustrated parent, just listen to me. You're going to make such a mess of things if you try and rule yourself. There's only one way to be rescued now. There's only one hope for any living human. Kiss the Son. In allegiance, acknowledge Him as King. Take refuge in Him. It's the only safe place. I wonder if you still feel sympathy for the uh, ruling na- those nations who band together to break their chains and their bondages, their shackles. I wonder. See, the wonderful thing about willful submission to Jesus as King is that we discover that what we imagined as shackles and chains of servitude, the imagined shackles and chains we expect to wear, they're in fact cords of love and bonds of love and kindness. Their familial ties were adopted as his children. Matthew 11 says this, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I remember when I became a Christian, I was in year six in primary school. I think I believed in Jesus before this time, but it was learning that he would come again that got me to my knees. Uh, prior to that point, I had this childish notion that, um, yeah, I'll become a Christian one day, but I want to live a little first. Now, I'm not sure what a kid in year six thinks living a little means, but I had this idea, I, I, I don't want to give, give away everything yet, I'll serve Jesus later. Uh, it's as if I had this notion that becoming a Christian meant that God would take all the good things off the table. I couldn't have been more wrong. The truth is that only through submission to Jesus can we be free. Without Him, well, that's where bondage is. Without Him, we're in bondage to sin and death. Without Him, we're hopelessly trapped, unable to please God with our lives. Without Him, we're in darkness. It's hopeless. When we come to Jesus, we discover He is wonderfully merciful, gracious and generous. When we lay down our personal freedoms and our ambition for self-satisfaction at the foot of the throne, we discover the riches of adoption into His family. We discover the glorious freedom of being dependent children of God. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you that in your mercy and kindness you make a way for us to be included in your family. Help us each day to submit to you as our King. Help us to live for you. 
I thank you for the glorious joy and blessing we find in being dependent on you. Amen. Now, we've got one question on our SMS line. It's a great question. Let me read it to you. Uh, it says this, Psalm 1 and 2 talk about God's wrath and judgment. How do we reconcile that with God's love and grace in the New Testament? Has God changed? Good question. I wonder how many people were thinking that. Has God changed? Absolutely not. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have one God, unchanging God. Uh, d- is there a difference between Him and the New and Old Testament? No. God in the New Testament, God today, still hates sin. He will still judge sin. How do we put that together with the picture of grace and mercy? Let's not minimize God's sovereign rule as king who judges. Because if we minimize the judgment of God, we can take for granted our need for forgiveness. God sent his one and only son, the king, not only to rule, but to die was the suffering servant. Jesus died so that all who are in him, all who submit to his reign, can be forgiven for their indiscretions, their moments where they don't show allegiance and serve themselves. None of us can do it. That's why the king died. Don't minimize the the judgment of God. Because I think we kind of think, well, why did Jesus need to die? It takes, it minimizes, I think, his grace as well. They go together. I don't know if that answers your question. But uh, I think this is why we can be so joyous about our dependence on King Jesus. Because it's through him we have full forgiveness. We're made holy. Um, Yeah. Come talk to me after if you have other questions.